was treat and extend fericimab an effective means of controlling DME in the Yosemite and Rhine studies? I'm Greg Notstein here with Scott Chriswanis, and this is New Retina Radio's coverage of the 2022 ASRS annual meeting. Renda Radio spoke with Dr. John Kitchens, whose ASRS presentation reviewed results from a pair of phase three studies that assessed, in part, 12-week and 16-week dosing intervals of fericimab in patients with DME. Also joining us is Dr. Michael Allingham. He shared results from the Phase 2 Zeta-1 study, which examined the safety and efficacy of APX3330, an oral medication for diabetic retinopathy. What promise might this treatment hold? Tune in to learn more. We've talked about how frequent dosing is a major barrier to compliance for patients with DME, many of whom are employed, young, and find short-term dosing patterns disruptive or difficult to maintain. Now that there is a drug, fericimab, that inhibits both VEGFN angiopoietin-2, are more durable treatments possible? To learn more on this, we turn to Dr. John Kitchens. He shared data from the Phase Three Yosemite and Rhine studies at ASRS this year. Dr. Kitchens practices at Retina Associates of Kentucky in Lexington and is easily New Retina Radio's most frequent collaborator. Dr. Kitchens, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Scott. Great to see you, Greg. It's great to be on with everybody. Let's start off with a quick refresher on fericimab. So, Greg, uh, fericimab is the first bispecific antibody designed for intraocular use. Uh, bispecific in that it, it really targets two different pathways. Um, as you'll be familiar with, the, the VEGF pathway, uh, it inhibits that with an anti-VEGF FAB. Real familiar with that technology, very similar to what we have with ranibizumab. But the second FAB, the second arm of the Y on this antibody is directed towards ANG2 or angiopoietin 2. And it's really this ANG1, ANG2 imbalance where in pathologic states we have a higher amount of ANG2 uh, that we see vascular instability, permeability, abnormal blood vessel growth, inflammation and other factors. And it's really this dual approach that can lead to increased durability and efficacy uh, because a lot of our diseases, diabetes specifically, and also age-related macular degeneration, exudative age-related macular degeneration, are really driven by both VEGF and this ANG1, ANG2 imbalance. Let's turn our attention to Yosemite and Rhine, which were randomized phase three trials that met their primary endpoints eventually paving the way to FDA approval for a DME indication. Tell us who was enrolled and what the treatment intervals look like. Yeah, so Greg, th these were both diabetic studies, okay? And in spe specifically, we were looking at center-involved diabetic macular edema, which means that the patients had to have a central subfield thickness of greater than 325 microns. Uh, it was a big study. I mean, there were about a thousand patients in each study, just under a thousand patients. And patients in each study, very similarly matched studies, uh, similar treatment paradigms, they were randomly assigned to either this Q eight week fericimab treatment group, where they received a series of monthly loading injections leading into then every other month. 
uh, a flibercept Q8 weeks, which also had the aforementioned loading doses. But this very interesting Ferisimab PTI, which is basically a stands for personalized treatment interval, where we just basically did a treat and extend to see how far out we could get these patients in between their different uh, different doses while maintaining a stable, dry OCT and good visual acuity. Talk to me about that personalized treatment interval. What exactly does that mean? What did the regimen look like? Well, Scott, it was a little bit different than what we may do in our clinical practices. Basically, patients had uh, four monthly doses, so it's really important to treat these patients aggressively up front. And then if they had a central subfield thickness of less than 325 microns and strict best corrected visual acuity change from baseline criteria that were met, they could be extended out by four-week intervals all the way out to 16 weeks. So for instance, you could receive four monthly injections in that kind of run-in phase. Then if you look great, you would go out to eight weeks. Uh, after an injection, if you look good at that eight-week visit, you get a treatment, you go out to 12 weeks. If you look great at 12 weeks, you could get a treatment and go out to 16 weeks. And, uh, and we could actually dial some of those patients back. So if they looked worse at 12 or 16 weeks, we could take them back to eight weeks or 12 weeks, depending on what they needed. To clarify, a personalized treatment interval is or isn't the same as treat and extend? Boy, I'll tell you, it, it's very similar to treat and extend. And I think in some instances, it could be considered treat and extend, Greg. Uh, really kind of splitting hairs. I personally, for my treat and extend patients, like to go out by a two-week interval extension. But in this study, they were uh, they were aggressive, and, and they did it with a four-week interval. The nice thing is, is they could also take the patients back. So if a patient wasn't doing well at 12 weeks or 16 weeks, they could take them back. Didn't happen very often, but they could do that. So I think it's fair to say it's kind of a unique treat and extend uh, paradigm. But it's individualized for the treatment. Understood. Now let's get to the treatment arms themselves. How did the patients in each of those three treatment arms fare in the study? Well, Scott, I'll tell you, all three treatment groups did great. And, and you know, we've really come to, to set that bar for our diabetic macular edema patients pretty high. And this study lived up to that bar. It, it exceeded that bar. All the patients at year two, and that's what we really had the data from was year two, uh, had gains of about 10 letters from baseline. 200 microns in reduction in central subfield thickness. Uh, and so really was great as far as our, our outcomes uh, were, were concerned. Uh, we did have more people end up with dry retinas in the ferisimab-treated arms than in the aflibercept-treated arms. Uh, and we saw a really interesting paradigm when it came to being able to extend these patients out. Let's talk just about the personalized treatment interval arm. Tell me how those patients fared. Well, I kind of alluded to this a little bit, but this is the real thunder of the whole story. At week 96, or the year two outcome, we saw great visual acuity gains. Once again, two lines of visual acuity, anatomical improvements of 200 microns. And in that PTI arm, we saw uh, the 16-week dosing regimen achieved by over 60% of patients in that PTI arm. And this is unbelievable to think that we could get patients out to four months in the first two years of treatment. But 80% of patients, 78%, just under 80% of patients were able to achieve 12-week dosing, which is just absolutely unbelievable. When patients were in a long treatment interval, did they tend to flirt with 12 or 16-week intervals before going 
back to a smaller one and maybe finding that eight or four was actually their threshold? Or were they able to stay in that lane once they entered a longer treatment interval? Yeah, so they looked at this. And actually, uh, if you look at the where patients were at year one, uh, if, a, if a patient was able to make that 12-week treatment interval at week 52, 80% of those patients were able to maintain that 12-week dosing out to year two. In a similar fashion, uh, if patients were able to reach 16 weeks in the first year, 76% of those patients were able to keep that same dosing all the way out to week 96. Uh, and on the converse side, you know, we always have these, uh, these patients that are frequent flyers that need a lot of treatment. Only 4% of these patients needed monthly treatment throughout the trial. Uh, so just a, a real paradigm shift in what we've come to expect from durability for an agent. What do these data actually mean for real-world patients? Boy, I'll tell you, real-world patients, Greg, are, are a whole mixed bag. You know, in the real world, these, once again, uh, were mostly treatment-naive patients. Uh, just less than a quarter of these patients have been previously treated. In the real world, I think a lot of these patients that we're going to be switching over to ferisumab have had numerous treatments with other agents. So I, I don't know that we can say that it's apples to apples, but for our patients right now, it's another option and it's another option that may well decrease the treatment frequency. And hopefully for those tough to treat patients actually gets our patients a little bit more visual acuity. Study didn't look at that, but, and the jury's still out on that. Uh, but, uh, but I'm really looking forward to using it in those patients that are struggling and see if it gives them a better option. Dr. Kitchens, as always, thank you so much for joining us here on New Retina Radio. Thanks, guys. Appreciate you having me. The great white whale, the silver bullet, whatever colorful metaphor you want to use, they all describe an elusive yet often sought-after thing. Let's use it here to discuss the engineering of a safe and effective oral therapy for retinal diseases that currently rely on intravitreal injections or laser application for treatment. For this discussion, we'll focus on an oral treatment for diabetic retinopathy, specifically APX3330, which is under investigation in the phase two study. Dr. Michael Allingham shared results from that study at the ASRS annual meeting this year. Dr. Allingham practices at the Duke Eye Center in Durham, North Carolina. Dr. Allingham, welcome to New Retina Radio. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. We typically think of diabetic retinopathy as VEGF-mediated and sometimes rely on laser therapy to address anatomic concerns, but APX3330 takes a different approach altogether. Can you tell us more about that? Sure. So, I mean, I think a little bit of context here, obviously, you know, we know that for diabetic retinopathy and, and many other, you know, retinal indications, we typically administer drugs through intravitreal injection, um, which is wonderful. And then you get, you know, you know, you put the drug on target uh, and these are highly efficacious for a lot of these indications. I think one of the challenges that we've had more recently in the field um, is for conditions like background diabetic retinopathy, which maybe are not yet um, you know, impacting a patient's vision? Um, and how do we treat those sorts of conditions and balance that risk-benefit ratio? And so I think it's telling, for example, that while we are approved to use intravitreal anti-VEGF for diabetic retinopathy, um, this is not frequently done. There are certainly situations where docs will do that, 
Um, but I don't think that there's been massive uptake in terms of treating all our background retinopathy with this. And a lot of that, I think, just stems from the risk-benefit ratio of a invasive repetitive therapy for a condition which isn't, imme isn't immediately site-threatening. Um, so that, that kind of led to the niche for something like APX3330, which is a little atypical for us in that it's an oral, oral drug that's being developed for treatment of diabetic retinopathy. I could go into the MOA a little bit if people are interested in hearing that, unless there's other questions. No, I think that that sounds good. You mentioned uh, before our recording today that there hasn't been a new mechanism of action in a long time. So can you walk me through the MOA for APX3330? Absolutely. So um, as, as we're familiar, you know, the, the two medical mainstays um, of treatment for diabetic retinopathy are, are anti-VEGF and then steroids, which are, among other things, anti-inflammatory. The, uh, the target for APX3330 is actually a transcription factor, which is called REF1. Um, which is a redox-activated transcription factor that's active under both inflammatory conditions and ischemic conditions, which obviously are relevant to diabetic retinopathy. And so essentially by inhibiting REF1, we decrease the activity of numerous other um, transcription factors which regulate many genes. Two of the big ones that get targeted are HIF1-alpha, which is an ischemia response pathway, and NF-kappa-B, which is a inflammation response pathway. And in inhibiting those, we end up reducing the expression of things like VEGF, TNF-alpha, and, and, and numerous other inflammatory cytokines. Let's move to what clinical trial data exist for APX3330. What do we know about how this drug reaches the retina? Sure. So I, I think you've hit on a really important point. Because, uh, you know, we know that our intravitreal drugs get to the retina because we're putting it there very obviously. Whenever we're dealing with a systemic drug, um, there's always this question of what is the exposure of the drug to the retina after you take it by mouth or by some other systemic route. Um, what we know from preclinical experience is that APX3330 administered to mice or rats show uh, efficacious drug levels in the retina and other ocular tissues. And then we've also looked at serum levels in humans with various doses of the drug and compared those to small animals receiving an effective dose of the drug in a, in a disease model and find that the humans actually have serum levels higher than those of the animals. So again, that gives us a little bit of, of confidence that the, the currently developed dose is going to get enough drug into the retina. The data you presented at ASRS this year were from a phase 2B study what can you tell us about the study and its design? Sure. So they've, uh, Occupier has, has named the study Zeta-1, and uh, this is a randomized double-masked placebo-controlled 24-week trial, uh, which is currently ongoing. And uh, the study design is at some level similar to, to what has been done for other um, clinical trials targeting DR. Um, so there's 103 patients and these were enrolled with moderately severe to severe NPDR or mild PDR, um, but without center-involving DME. Non-center-involving DME was allowed into the study. Um, these subjects were randomized one-to-one -to, -one to receive APX 3330, 600 milligrams per day, and that ends up being a twice-daily oral dose versus a placebo. Uh, the primary endpoint is the proportion of patients experiencing a two-step improvement in DRSS at week 24, and then the secondary endpoints are what you, what you would expect, basically CST, 
um, best corrected vision, DRSS change at week 12, frequency of rescue, and then, and then safety. Let's touch on safety so far. What has the research team found? Right. So the, uh, the, the study is currently ongoing, and so we obviously can't look at the unmasked data. So what we did to get a handle on that, since many of the subjects are pretty far along in the trial, is basically take masked safety data. So this is pooled data from both the placebo arm as well as the active drug arm of the study. And um, what we've basically seen is overall safety has been good and reflects the prior experience with the drug and other trials for different non-ocular indications. Um, what we have not seen is any sort of evidence of major organ toxicity. Um, there have been no treatment-related serious adverse events. Of all the adverse events in the study, um, only 24 have been treatment-related, 17 of which were mild. There were seven of which were moderate, and um, these included some systemic things like GI upset, uh, urticaria, changes to hemoglobin or hematocrit, and then the two, two ocular findings, which were moderate and suspected to be related to study drug or placebo, was blurry vision in one uh, subject and then DME, which was new. I guess the only thing I would add on top of that is that four subjects have withdrawn due to an adverse event. Um, most of these were systemic things like syncope um, or osteomyelitis, which could happen in this population anyhow. There was one patient that withdrew due to um, due to DME, and again, we don't know whether this patient was receiving placebo or active drug. Um, but I think taken overall in a hundred patients, um, the safety has been actually quite good. You mentioned that the study is ongoing, and that's why you were unable to look at unmasked data. Can you give us an update on the trial itself? Absolutely. So, so we're we're at the getting excited phase. There's, as we said, 103 patients which are enrolled, and all of these have completed through week 12 of the study, um, with 60% having completed through week 24, the the final endpoint, and that is as of June 15th. So we're a little bit further along than that right now. So we're expecting top line data um, in probably Q4 of 2022, um, with presentation of the data likely uh, early 2023. Dr. Allingham, thanks for joining us and giving us this update. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me. That was our second episode of the ASRS coverage for 2022. We've got one more coming up, so keep an eye out on your feed. If you're already listening in a podcast app, then tap subscribe. If you're listening on a desktop or mobile browser, head over to Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Spotify tap subscribe and have new episodes sent directly to your device.